Yeah. my mind. So what are you what are you drinking? Now you're making me realize how parched I am. What ex- explain your beverage process and I'm I'm gonna go and get a beverage of my own. Explain the whole thing. What are you drinking right. today? What do you normally drink? I'll be right back. Um Well normally I don't like to drink too much before I uh, before enduring uh, I uh, I record a podcast because I want to be somewhat sharp. Uh, and generally I'm the host, so you know, I like having a drunk guest is great, but being the host and being wasted is a bit less great. At the moment, I am drinking a glass of red wine, uh, a glass of Santa Cristina from uh, Toscana, um, which is uh, very nice. It's quite a of. Um, it's a bit of a it's different. Probably shit talking me. Are you shit talking me? Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> need to make sure I, I'm gonna be listening back to make sure <laughs> I was actually right. I was being very nice I did not take the opportunity oh. to shit talk you um, oh, well, although good. I Thanks. have done that I have done that before uh, that but not true. with <laughs> well maybe to a lesser extent with episodes that you're on although I probably mm-hmm. haven't shied away from it on episodes that you were on either um, that's true yeah Ah, oh, I was just explaining the, that I have a, a glass of um, a very nice red wine here, Santa Cristina Ooh. from uh, Scana. Oh, oh, very nice. Yeah, and That's just very, uh, a high class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and just a liter bottle of water, um, okay. because I get fucking dried out. Uh, yeah, and I'm the one talking. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I definitely, <laughs> at one point or another, I'm gonna need to take a break and get more water because. Yes. Uh, is going to be one. Oh, yeah. um, oh man, let's get into it. So, uh, do you have questions to begin with? And then I think I want to make a. I guess I want to make a, a disclaimer. People, uh, I've been hyping um, for a while <laughs> these episodes, and I don't know if people understand how the format is or anything about the history of the Russian Revolution. But today's episode. You will be surprised to find out there's very little mention of the probably most of the characters that you're familiar with in the Russian Revolution. Really? Because I, I don't know if this was just me. It might have been just me. But um, I don't know. In this country or, or whatever, the Russian Revolution is 1917, obviously. Yeah. And... That's what everybody knows, right? But there's a whole revolution that happens like 12 years before that in 1905. And that's the actual, in my opinion, Russian Revolution, the first one. Because the second one is more like a military coup and then it turns into the Bolshevik Revolution. Right. And so we'll get into that later. But the reason why I'm saying this is because, again, people are conditioned to think when they think of the Russian Revolution, they think of people like Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky. Mm-hmm. Um, you will be surprised to find out we will be talking almost nothing about any of those people today because... Well, I'm certainly surprised. <laughs> we're going to go back first and I'm going to give you more or less the entire history up to 1917. And the interesting thing is, and, and I get to this at the end of... Uh, what I'm going to do today 
the interesting thing is that many of the people who you associate with 1917 are not even in in Russia at the time. I mean, more or less Russia proper. Uh, Stalin, I believe, was exiled to Siberia at the time. <laughs> Trotsky was exiled at the time. Uh, Lenin was uh, exiled at the time in Germany. Right. They were all yeah. exiled at the time. And they'd been exiled many times before, and they'll be exiled many times after this. Um, but yeah, so so just as a preface, if anybody wanted to hear about Lenin and Stalin, well, really, for Stalin, you're going to have to wait t- probably two episodes. <laughs> and for Lenin and Trotsky, you probably have to wait for the next one. But for this one, I think this one is absolutely necessary, by the way, because I don't know, again, an American education week we, we kind of if when if we ever talk about the russian revolution we start at 1917 right at least i was always educated that way but there's an entire history behind it and why everybody was so mad and 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 how the part like i'm not even going to be talking much about the bolshevik party in this one because we'll go and we'll talk about the bolshevik party when we talk about lenin and stalin mm-hmm. Yeah, but, uh, I, um, but, like there, there's a whole reason why that thing forms, and and I'm hoping this is the episode where I can give all of the background and talk about the royalty and how weird they are. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to give that preface. So anybody who really specifically wants to get to the later period of this, you got to wait for the next episode. But I promise you, this one, and especially like I said, I was writing the end of this one today. Uh, my heart was going. This is a very uh, 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 crazy story, especially considering what is going on uh, today. <laughs> I am very curious. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, questions. Must say, I hardly know anything more uh, than you, um, because, uh, well, first of all, I have not had time to do any research, so I'm basically just uh, letting you tell the whole yeah, story. Um, yes. Yeah. But from the uh, history education that I've had, or what I remember at least from. Uh, high school is that the Russian Revolution was not covered uh, very much in detail. Um, yeah. So yep. basically, the extent of what I remember from my uh, high school history education is that uh, in the early 1900s, some shit is going on in Russia. Lenin catches yeah. a train. Um, yes. So more shit. See, goes we didn't on. even learn about the train. We didn't even learn about the train. That's the that's so funny. They don't even talk about that. The fact that like yeah. <laughs> half of the Bolshevik Revolution was seeded by the Germans. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Germans, man! It's always the goddamn yeah. Germans. Always the Germans. Um, and then uh, basically we have communism, uh, yeah. and then the wall uh, falls, and that also predicts pretty much the end of the Soviet Union. Um, yeah. The fall of the yeah, Berlin that's, Wall. That's more or less what most people know about the Soviet Union. I'm not even I'm not even sure if we're going to end up talking about the Soviet Union in this in this in this series. We may never actually get to the Soviet Union. Wow. Um, um yeah, yeah, be- because there's a whole lot of pre-Soviet Union thing. That's Stalin's thing, Soviet Union. Yeah, pretty much. So so by by then it's, you know, it's it's kind of like over. <laughs> the, the revolution is kind of <laughs> over as as you can imagine. Yeah. Uh let's yeah. see. Then I have Two more questions. Yeah. Um, one is if you will allow me to tell uh, two very bad jokes that I have heard or read somewhere. Uh, okay. That I'm that not gonna promise. I'm, I'm not promising I'll laugh, but I, I will definitely. 
that were made Listen. by like Russians in the Soviet Union at some point. Oh, really? Um, okay. And the other one, but we'll get into that in a little bit, of course, is where uh, does today's episode begin and where does it end? Okay. So do the jokes and I'll give you the where it begins and where it ends because uh, that's actually that'll be a good way to get in. All right, sweet. Um, so number one, uh, this guy, uh, he, he uh, dies and he arrives in hell. You know, he's been an asshole in his life. He's, uh, he's hurt some people, so he goes to hell. Um, and uh, the like the, the head demon there, uh, not the devil because he's a bit busy, you know, CEO of hell, can't be showing everyone around. Um, no. Head demon is showing him around, so they walk into one room, and there's this big, deep, fiery pit. Uh, mm. And there's a bunch of demons with uh, um, like tridents uh, standing on the edge poking anyone uh, that's trying to get back or that's trying to climb out of it. Um, hmm. So the man asks, like, who's here? Like, what have these people done? Well, these are the Americans. You know, they're dirty capitalists. Uh, they didn't give a fuck about anyone. They're greedy fucking bastards, you know? So, mm-hmm. you know, this is where we keep the Americans. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So uh, they move on to the next room. An even bigger, an even fiery pit with with screams of uh, people burning alive and, and, you know, the damned being uh, very busy being damned. Um, so, you know, again, uh, little devils with uh, pitchforks on the edges. Um, so he asks, like, who's here? What's going on here? Well, mm. the devil says, uh, or the, the demon says, um, these are the French. Because, uh, <laughs> I mean... Honestly, the French are just a, an immoral uh, uh, bunch. Like, they fuck around, you know. They're, they're <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> I mean, there's all kinds of things wrong, wrong with them. So, then they go into a third room, an even bigger and fierier pit. Um, hmm. And, strangely, there's no demons with tridents on the edge here. So God takes another look, and there's more screams of the damned and more people being burned alive uh, for all eternity. Uh, and he sees uh, that uh, every time some poor fucking soul tries to climb out, he's pulled back into it uh, by his uh, fellow damned in the pit. Okay. So he asks, what's wrong with these people? Like, why are they pulling each other back into damnation? Well, says the demon... Uh, these are the communists. <laughs> okay, that was good. <laughs> All right, that's a good one. That's a right, good one. So that's one. Uh, yeah. And then there's the other one. Um, there are three guys in the gulag in Siberia somewhere. Uh, and they're mm. having a talk about like what they're there for and for how long. Um, so the first guy is like, well, you know, I'm here for life. Uh, and uh, what I did is I called Comrade Stalin uh, a pig. You know, a, a dirty fucking pig. Uh, mm-hmm. And the other two guys like, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, makes sense. You know, that you would be uh, put in the gulag for life for that. Uh, you shouldn't call Comrade Stalin a pig. So, you know, uh, they ask the next guy. And the next guy is like, well, you know, I'm here for 20 years. Uh, because I was the last or the first one uh, to stop clapping and sit down. 
Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, and like, you know, yeah, that makes sense. You know, you shouldn't be the first one to stop clapping. Uh, like, what kind of asshole are you? You should just, like, keep cap- clapping for Comrade Stalin. Um, so they asked the next guy. And he's like, well, I'm in here for 10 years, uh, and I did nothing. I am entirely innocent. And the other two guys are like, well, that's bullshit. Because we all know that the punishment for doing nothing is five years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Christ. <sighs> I, I, it, it, there was one book that I was reading. It was called um, The Russian Revolution, like a national tragedy or something like that. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. It's like, yeah, yep. Sure is. <laughs> they haven't had a win, I don't think. I'm not sure. I don't think they've had a win. I don't think they've had a win in a very long time. <sighs> I mean, even winning a World War II wasn't that much of a win, really. Not really a win. Not really a win. All right. So where does it take place? Well, where is Russia? I don't know. I don't know. Somewhere in the I north, know, I, I think. Yeah, that's a hard. It's a hard, hard question to ask. Is it in Asia? <laughs> is it in Europe? Um, well, y'all know where Russia is, I'm sure. I hope. My God. I sure hope so. Um, <laughs> well, we're dealing with Americans here, Bert. You know, can't get fucked up too much. The, uh, I guess you could say Russia, especially the period of, well, okay. So the place where this is, uh, where this is going to take place is in, in the, the more or less the, the European part of Russia, which goes right. basically... Get out your map, and it <laughs> goes from the Poland at this period of time, and I'll tell you the period of time after this. Okay. Well, okay, fine. 1860s to <laughs> 1905. All right. Um, it spans from Poland all the way to the uh, Pacific Ocean, um, but the period, the, the place we're going to be talking about is uh, Western Russia, which is all in Europe, which spans from Poland to the Ural Mountains. You can go and look up where that is on the map. Um, and that's where that takes place. It's in, and this is going to take place between about 1861 is the earliest thing I reference. And 1905 is more or less the last thing I'm going to reference. All right. There's your time and place. And then after that, I guess the next episode will do 1905 to 1917. And then after that, we'll do 1917 to 1918. Uh, and, right. Or Stalin. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to read. <laughs> <laughs> uh, excuse me for my inability to read. Uh, I have no excuse. <laughs> allow, me get, allow, me get, allow me to get out my notes. <clears throat> I'll, I'll, I'll occasionally give a stop, be like questions, comments, things like that. All right. Um, okay. I'll, uh, I'll open up a Word doc to... for, uh, for any questions and comments to write down. Oh, very good. <laughs> very good. And, uh, and um, yeah, okay, fine. My yeah. notes are in. Can I up and down? Oh, yes, I can. Yes, we can. We are in the future. Uh, all right. So uh, let's talk about the Russian Empire. I'm calling this episode Twilight of the Regime. That's what I'm going right. to call it. I'm going to call what we're going to do. This is an introduction. So let's talk about the Russian Empire. So at the turn of the 20th century, the Russian Empire spans an enormous expanse of about 6,000 miles. It stretches from the marches of Poland to the Pacific Ocean and up from the Arctic Seas down to the Central Asian Steppe. 
Since the 17th century, Russia had been expanding at a rate of 20,000 miles per year, swallowing whole chunks of China, Afghanistan, Iran, and Turkey. Its population had quadrupled in the 19th century to about 150 million people and leaps by about another 25 million by the year 1914. It was the world's fifth largest economy. Uh, The Russian capital, St. Petersburg, was a bustling center of wealth with a distinct European identity. Much of the architecture and glamour of the city was inspired by the Renaissance. The high society spoke French and not Russian, and the city boasted an enviable nightlife and hosted the Imperial Ballet and the concerts of Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky, by the way, absolutely ridiculous. So this is a nation that is expanding, and I wanted to do this for my American listeners at about the size of a West Virginia every year. Uh, and to uh, uh, my European listeners and to you specifically, Dutch, I managed to find these numbers. Uh, the low countries, if you take out half of Belgium, right. is about the span that they're expanding every year. So it's pretty massive. Before the reign of Peter the Great, after whom the city was named, uh, the Russian nation was centered around the city of Moscow. Uh, the old capital of Russia, Moscow remained the spiritual center of the empire and was the place where every czar was crowned. Beyond the great capitals, in the less trafficked areas of the nation, the country was a poor site. Agriculture in the region was woeful and yielded as little as one-seventh the harvests of England. The lands were racked with famine, and in the year 1892, half a million Russian peasants died, mostly of cholera. The rural life was hard, and about 80-90% to 90% of the people in the nation belonged to the peasant class. And though serfdom in Russia had ended in 1861 after the emancipation of the serfs, the liberation of the peasant class was little more than a trap. Serfs were able to redeem land that would be given to them by locking in mortgages. But the payment of these mortgages was effectively impossible because the Russian economy was almost entirely cashless, and most peasants still had to make their own equipment. Mortgages were required to be paid communally rather than individually, and this caused a strengthening of local communes and effectively turned the peasantry into property-owning landlords. Railroad construction in Russia begins in about 1889 after Russian director of railway affairs Sergei Wheat, who plays a very important role in the entirety of this story, launches a campaign to build the Trans-Siberian Railway. Under his leadership, Russia adopts the gold standard and becomes a pioneer of industry. His successes grant him a promotion to the Ministry of Finance, and by 1900, Witt had steered the economy into a miracle, capitalizing on mining, metalworking, and energy production. The economy boomed, growing about 8% annually, and the ports of Riga and Odessa quintupled in size during the years that Witt remained control of the Ministry of Finance. Boomtowns sprung up all across the Ural Mountains, Caspian Sea, and the Western Siberian Steppe, drowning in oil money. Wealth began to concentrate in the hand of Russia's oil barons and industrialists, but Witt's boom also saw the rapid growth of an industrial proletariat class. According to the estimates by the Russian government, there were nearly 3 million factory workers in 1914, and these figures are known to be lowballed because most factory workers were understaffed and did not investigate smaller enterprises or territorial boomtowns. Wages were low and women were paid less than men, and paces were hard. Factory conditions were harsh, shanty towns and common houses were crammed with low-skilled workers, and people crowded public soup kitchens. Unlike in Bismarck's Germany, where accident insurance and old-age pensions were guaranteed to every citizen, the Russian government made no such promises. Religious charities provided most of the medical care for the injured, and the patriarchal nature of Russian society imposed certain social limits on work that children and women were allowed to do. No doubt the life of a Russian laborer was difficult, but Russian culture and Orthodox Christianity, which guaranteed every Saturday a half off of work and every Sunday fully off of work, eased a few of life's burdens. 
Russian industrialists colluded with the Tsar to establish intermediary institutions between the Tsar and his subjects that helped to dampen popular frustrations. Labor unions were made illegal, and there was no parliament to speak of. The only concessions which had ever been given to the people followed after Russia's humiliating defeat in the Crimean War. In 1864, Tsar Alexander II had allowed for the creation of provincial assemblies known as Zemsfos. This lasted until about 1890 when Alexander effectively dissolved them and turned them into subordinate offices for regional governors, which he was the only person who had the ability to appoint. It was not surprising then that the labor base became a breeding ground for radicalism, and peasants who were denied legal recourse often resorted to violence. The mid to late 1800s saw an explosion of radicalism among the peasantry and the burgeoning industrial proletariat classes. Revolutionaries began to appear from out of the woodwork, such as Alexander Herzen, uh, who was the editor of the socialist periodical Kolokol, Mikhail Bakunin, who was the founder of the anarcho-syndicalist tradition of Russian anarchism, Peter Kropotkin, Sergei Nechayev, and the nihilist Narodniki movement, which popularized the use of political terrorism in the modern world. This group, which was responsible for the later assassination of Alexander II, inspired a wave of copycat assassinations across Europe and North America that took the lives of at least six heads of state and a dozen lesser figures, including, at the end of it, uh, leading to the assassination of President McKinley in the United States. A new Marxist party began to emerge in Russia just before the turn of the century. This group, the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, was formed in March of 1898 as a committee within the Second Working Man's International Institution. The Second Working Man's was organized just 10 years earlier as a means to standardize the principles of Marxism after Marx's death in 1883. This party was immediately placed under surveillance and its very formation was considered a criminal offense. Many of its leaders were victims of, quote, administrative exile, condemnations of periods of up to five years in, in Siberia. Exiles received an annual allowance for clothing, food, and rent, and these conditions were considered lenient, especially by comparison to the later Soviet gulags. One resident, and excuse my pronunciation, but I will try my best, Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, Lenin, uh, you'll know him better as, who was the son of a noble statesman, was able to travel to Siberia first class, bringing his mother and a maid with him. So long as exiles stayed in Siberia, they were allowed to do as they pleased. But security at railway stations was poor, and false papers were easy to procure on the black market. Yosef Jugashvili, who you'll know better as Stalin, was a former uh-huh. seminarian and exile for his implication in a violent demonstration in Baku, where 13 people were killed boasted about escaping Siberia six or eight times. The regime began to struggle domestically with various opposition groups. Student protesters drove an upsurge in radicalism in the universities in St. Petersburg, Moscow, Warsaw, and Kiev in response to a governmental decree that uplifted student deferments if students were caught protesting. Interior Minister Vyacheslav Plev, who exercised sweeping new powers during the reign of Nicholas II, was appointed to break the labor movement piece by piece. While he understood the threat of student protesters, Plev believed he could isolate parts of the working masses, give them some benefits, and win over their passive acceptance of the regime. Plev spurred the Russification plans in Poland and Finland, neutralized the Zemsvo councils, and gave new life to the old regime. The infamous Kineshev pogrom, which led to the death of hundreds of Jews and the rape of thousands more, as well as the destruction of hundreds of homes, was a breaking point for the relationship between the regime and its Jewish subjects. Huge numbers of educated Jews began to join the revolutionary socialist movement, forming the Bund, a radical Marxist party that united Jewish leaders in Lithuania, Poland, and Russia. Even moderate Jews wholesale abandoned assimilation in favor of revolutionary politics. 
Jews within the peasant classes joined armed self-defense organizations. No doubt these factors set the conditions which would lead to a tremendous rise in anti-Semitism in Russia and Europe more generally, and would serve as a ground for which the Nazis would later use to connect Bolshevism with an international radical Jewry. The Brussels Congress erupted when Lenin announced his main goal was to defeat the Bund's autonomy in the still unified Bolshevik Menshevik party. The cosmopolitan internationalism of Lev Bronstein, Trotsky, and Julius Martov, the founder of the Bund, broke away from Lenin as they believed he mirrored the arguments of the Russian anti-Semites. The split occurred when Martov storms out of the building and Trotsky follows in suit. In effect, Lenin had rejected Jewish socialist internationalism in favor of Russian Narodniki-inspired populism, which he grafted on top of Marxism. More pogroms continued in the 1900s, with the Gamel pogrom of 1903 actually leading to the death of more Christians than Jews. Jewish self-defense organizations had begun to guarantee more safety and autonomy to Jewish community than the Russian police ever had. The Russian military had been able to restore peace to these communities and would have been able to keep doing so into the reign of Nicholas II. The opposition, made up of student radicals, industrial proletariats, Jews, Poles, and Finns, as well as other minority groups, was still small enough to be effectively managed by the military. The only challenge which would have caused the regime to shake would have had to come from the international arena. Nicholas, who enjoyed nearly a decade of peace after assuming his father Alexander II's throne, or rather that should say Alexander III's, my bad, was unprepared for the foreign policy disaster that was looming ahead. This disaster would not only shake the old regime, the legacy of Mikhail Romanov and Peter the Great, but would force the antiquated institutions to finally crumble. So that's the opening. We're going to talk about, oh God, Nicholas. Oh, Nicholas. <laughs> Any questions, Dutch? Uh, yes, two. Yes. Uh, so <clears throat> I think we can already see a very clear uh, deviation from the revolts and revolutions that we've covered before this. Uh, so for your listeners, uh, that being the Dutch Revolt, French Revolution, American Revolution, um, right. being that those were very, uh, or, or those brought forward and were very much inspired by very individualist ideas. Um, I, You might even see very capitalist ideas. Um but oh, and another thing that you that I think is very different here um, is that it seems that students are very active in this, whereas in the other all of the others, it was more um, either rich tradespeople or tradesmen and uh, like minor nobility. So that's right. Do that's you right. know why a the Russians loved Marx so much, uh, and B, what caused students to be so active in this uh, as, as compared to other revolutions. Uh, okay, okay, cool. I'm smart like um, that. So why were the Russians attracted to Marx? So that's because yes. Marx was attracted to the Russians. Uh-huh. Um, early Marx, there's a deviation that occurs in Marx's thinking. And it occurs somewhere between what you what Marxists would call early Marx and late Marx. Early Marx is distinctly more libertarian. Late oh. Marx is distinctly more authoritarian. Early Marx, you get people out of that, like Antonio Gramsci, who's very anti-state. You get people like Rosa Luxemburg, who's more or less the intellectual leader of libertarian socialism right. after 
early Marx throughout. Um, this distinction is very important because what is libertarian and authoritarian in actuality? Obviously, libertarianism in the United States means one thing, but you as European, you know, libertarian is used among socialists, among left, mm -hmm. among right, everybody. It's, it's, um, le it's less a political ideology, more an inclination. So right. what does that entail? Well, why, did, why was Marx more libertarian in the early period? Because he was looking at the Paris Commune. Paris Commune, obviously, all the way over there in France, same place where a lot of these individualist ideas were inspired, mixed with socialism, and I mean, really not even that mutually exclusive from socialism, but that's where Marx gets his inspiration early on from. Later, Marx turns towards the peasantry. Obviously, you remember early Marx, and this is, you know, Marxism is one of those things very difficult to track. <laughs> um but, you know, early Marx is focused, obviously, on the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Yes. This is why Marx thought that an industrial uh, uh, setting would have been good for a, a, a communist revolution. Uh, however, later on, Marx realizes, well, in Russia, what about their situation? So a lot of Marx's later work is focused on Russia and the peasant class in Russia. And so the reason I think why a lot of the Russians were appealed to by Marx was because, well, unlike the previous revolutions that we studied, Marx wasn't there. And Marx descends from a lot of the same ideological traditions that the same people who inspired all the revolutions we previously covered came from. Right. I mean, what is Marx? What is Marx ultimately his magnum opus is Das Kapital? What is that? Well, it's an examination of capitalism mm -hmm. and the entire system of capitalism. And it references Adam Smith, references John Locke, references Hobbes. I mean, this is, it's a, so the reason why is because Marx is the, probably the most significant continental theorist to come after those revolutions. And his writing in his later period is, is very much tailored to the Russian consciousness and I, I could maybe we could do an episode at one point we'll do a bonus <laughs> promise and we could do the, the oh, difference Christ. between early marxism and late marxism but just take my word for it late marxism is may late marxism is a result of analysis of the peasant classes of russia and therefore is tailored to the peasant classes of russia and so i think that's a, a hugely influential reason. There may have been a point at which Marx actually visited Russia. I, I think that is the case. I think a lot of, I think the communist manifesto was actually first published in Russia because, which is funny, but despite the fact that Russia was probably the most authoritarian regime in Europe in, in, at the time, uh, right. the press was free. It was a oh, free wow. press. And so Marx was able to print the Communist Manifesto pretty freely. Uh, th that doesn't mean that it was, um, you know, not on a watch list or not persecuted. Of course it was. By free press, I mean to say the Russian people didn't give a shit and they just printed whatever they wanted. Right. And so Marx was able to early on get a lot more coverage in Russia than most of the other European states because of that fact. Um, that the Russian people simply printed what they pleased. Um, so that's one reason. Now, the second question had to do with students? Yes. Yeah, so uh, I was wondering because in uh, the Dutch world, French Revolution, American Revolution, you see a lot of uh, lower nobility and a lot of um, richer All citizens, right. yes. essentially. 
right. uh, take right. part in being the leaders of this whole movement. Sure. Not students in particular, but you see mm. a very strong um, well, activism and, and participation right. from students in this whole um, revolution. So, yeah. Why, why is that? So, uh, it is important to mention it. Perhaps it's not as big a student involvement as it sounds. And that's not because most of the students weren't involved, but 90% of this country is peasants, not right. students. So yes, the students are involved, but there's not many of them. There's really not that many of them. Um, students, we listen, we haven't talked about a lot of revolutions. Um, no. We didn't talk about the, and now I'm, I'm going to get it wrong. Well, okay. First, we didn't talk about the Iranian revolution, for example, which was, which <laughs> was actually know. led by students. We didn't huh. talk about the, I'm going to get the, I really am going to get the name of it wrong, but we essentially didn't talk about the Turkish revolution, the young Turks revolution. Those were right. all students. Uh, so, so there are a lot of student led rebellions. Students tend to lead rebellions most of the time. It is a good thing that you bring up, why wasn't that the case in these revolutions? Perhaps it was because the revolutions that we covered before this were, I mean, still very much aristocratic societies. And and so therefore, if you were a student, you might've been a noble. I'm not sure. Maybe by the 1900s, modernism had changed that. And there were more public schools opened up, public meaning, you know, (laughs) available to the average person rather than to just very, very wealthy person. Um, that might have been the case. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, but needless to say, students do lead a tremendous amount of the protests. But also it, these actual protests, I think, are spearheaded by the students who eventually become the leaders of the Duma, the parliamentarians, the Soviets, mm-hmm. the Bolsheviks. They eventually become that. But remember what Soviet means. A Soviet is a collection of uh, soldiers, students, and workers. Uh-huh. So those are the people who are leading these. Think that those three groups, and you'll see as the story unfolds why that is the case. But yeah, all right. There you go. Um, so let's so, do. Oh, you, anything else? Yeah. Before you go on. Um, yes. I think in uh, in all of our next episodes where we cover the Iranian Revolution and the Turkish Revolution and the Chinese Revolution, yes. uh, yeah. we will discover a wider trend of students leading um, revolutions and protests, and also figure right. out why this is. Um, yes. That would be a good All thing right. to focus on, why that is. Yes. I can't right. wait to so uh, record like 10 more years of revenue. 20, 20 of these? Yes. <laughs> yes. We're going to have a very impressive catalog by the time it's done. <laughs> so let's talk about 300 years of Romanov Revolution. So uh, in February of 1913, St. Petersburg was celebrating 300 years of rule under the Romanov dynasty. Yes. This celebration brought with it an extravagant, months-long celebration. Uh, the streets were adorned with ribbons, littered with confetti, and the crowd was to the point of bursting as the city attempted to cope with the worst traffic jams in its entire history. Tram lines, horse-drawn carts, carriages, uh, covered wagons flooded the streets. Paintings lined the major streets depicting the patriarchs of the Romanov dynasty going all the way back to Mikhail Romanov, the founder. Parliamentarians from the Duma civil servants, generals, admirals, governors, mayors, Zemsvo leaders, marshals, and priests of the Orthodox faith, going all the way up to the Patriarch of Antioch, who was the head of the Orthodox faith, all attended the ceremonies. Bejeweled crafts were brought in, 
Sacred relics and even a cross made entirely of crystal was put on display. During the ceremony, doves were said to have flown over Nicholas II and his son Alexei, <laughs> an event which Nicholas himself describes as a moment of supreme blessing by God on the Romanov family. Outside of the walls of the city, in the poorer areas, public canteens flooded as free food was being distributed for the occasion. The day was declared a municipal holiday, and so all manufactories were closed. Amnesty was granted to 2,000 prisoners in observation of the holiday. The Romanov family, Nicholas, the wife Alexandra, and his son Alexei spent several weeks at the Winter Palace, the crowning jewel of the Russian Empire, in celebration of the dynasty. In May, after three months of celebration, the family had organized a pilgrimage around the ancient Muscovite towns, which were associated with the founding of the dynasty. I'm going to try my best, ladies and gentlemen. These towns include Kostroma, the first seat of the Romanov family, Ipatiev Monastery, Vladimir, Nitsin, oh, there you go, Nisni Novgorod, and Yaroslavl. The trip ended in the city of Moscow, the old capital of Russia, where Mikhail Romanov had been crowned. The decorations in Moscow were even more extravagant than those in St. Petersburg, with the famous Red Square hosting most of the festivities. During the celebration, Alexei had to be shuffled, uh, shuffled off, struck by another bout of hemophilia. The prime, the prime minister had even remarked in a later writing that he had heard many exclamations of sorrow at the sight of the poor child who was destined to become the, the emperor at one point. The excessive pageantry was not only a consequence of boundless wealth, but was a meticulously planned propaganda exercise which sought to inspire loyalty among the peasantry. Rituals of homage directed towards the dynasty sought to glorify its history and revive popular support of autocracy, which the dynasty had for a long time enjoyed. The aim of the dynasty was not simply to recount the past. The Romanov dynasty was instead reinvented so as to invest the monarchy with a sense of historical legitimacy and an image of enduring permanence and, and involvement with its people. The Romanovs hoped that by escaping to a fictionalized past, they could reconstruct their image of the present. So we're going to do profiles for this episode. Uh, this profile is just of Nicholas. Well, you'll hear about a couple of other interesting figures in the process, but I figure we should do a profile of the major characters of each episode, and today we're going to focus on Nicholas. All right, sounds good. So the Tsar and his regime. Nicholas II was born Nikolai Alexandrovich Romanov, the eldest son of a titanic father, Alexander III, it was obvious from an early age that he did not inherit the paternal gene for rulership. Had Nicholas grown up in England or Sweden, where the role of the monarch was more or less ceremonial, he would have fit in perfectly. However, the Russian system proved to be a different beast. It had to be commanded by an almost omniscient autocrat, the, like, the kind like his father and grandfather had been. Aspiring to this role would ultimately contribute to the unwinding of his regime, a regime which was well in collapse by the time Nicholas's Nicholas was on the throne. Nicholas had always grown up in the shadow of his father. His father spared him no ex at no expense, mocking him for being a weakling and an imbecile. He called him girly <laughs> and had little hope of preparing him for the tasks of... <laughs> it really is terrible, right? And he had little hope of preparing him for the tasks of, Russia, of governing a nation the size of Russia. Nicholas was brought up with a superb education and an impressive pedigree. He was third cousins with Wilhelm II, the final Kaiser of Germany, both descendants of Paul of Russia. He was also cousins with George V, with whom he bears a striking resemblance. Uh, I recommend everybody go and look up. Uh, there's a famous photograph of the two of them, and they're dressed kind of like in naval attire. Look up George V and Nicholas II. It's, in, it's insane how similar they look, and, and I'll 
you'll uh, you'll feel you'll understand why. I think I've seen this <laughs> to, photo. I sent it to you. Yeah. So to put it in yeah, perspective, right. the family's relations, like the family relations that controlled the three of the most powerful monarchies in Europe at the time, all three of these men shared the same grandmother, Queen Victoria. All three of these men ruled at the same time, inheriting their thrones at roughly the same time, 1850s to 1860s. Nicholas was educated in a military school under a personal tutor, and he excelled in mathematics and chemistry, but he had little to no interest in intellectualism at all. He had enjoyed athletic pursuits, but found most of his fascinations in court intrigue. To this effect, he began to study military technology and science and undertook learning as many as five languages. Jesus. It was common for Russian nobility uh, to speak French at the time. He was also fluent in English, which he spoke and wrote letters with. He was also uh, fluent in German, which he spoke with to his wife. Uh, and of course, he knew his mother tongue, Russian. Uh, much like his father, Nicholas was a paranoid man. He had an inherent suspicion of rationality and would often denigrate the Enlightenment, blaming his ancestor Peter the Great for incorporating Western philosophy into Russian culture. Nicholas had a penchant for ceremonialism. He was an extremely dedicated worker and would insist on hearing every military report. He believed the nobility had compromised the autocracy by their laziness. He was deeply engaged in, in religious ceremonies common to the Tsar, taking his time to personally bless regiments of troops before they were sent off to battle. His religiosity was only compounded by the culture of Russian orthodoxy. He believed in a mystical union between his people, the Russian peasantry, and his family. For a long time, this was more or less a reality, and the Tsar was loved and obeyed like a father figure, and among the heads, uh, the chief's heads of the faith. The particular style, unique to the Russian autocracy, had always proven to be a source of simple stability in an increasingly complex world, and allowed for the peasantry to be more or less free from the complications of the modern state. Nicholas was obsessed with Russia's Muscovite past. This is likely because of the religious implications which afforded his regime a particular authority which he believed Peter the Great and his Enlightenment had wiped away. He was outspoken about his preferences for Moscow, the old capital of Russia, over St. Petersburg, commenting about the religious ecstasy he would experience when he viewed the holy city with its thousands of onion-shaped domes. In his passion to rewrite the past, the regime adopted three principles which were synonymous with the Muscovite sardoms that appealed to him. These customs, which predated the reign of Peter the Great, were essential to his style of rule. First, his reign adopted a particular notion of patrimony called Yachina, which deemed the Tsar to literally own all of the lands in Russia as private property. This kind of claim resembled that of the traditions found in the medieval ages of Western Europe. Nicholas acknowledged his role as the primary renter of Russia to his people, even going so far as to list his occupation as landlord in the first national census. Holy For a long shit. time, the principle of Yachina had prevented the, the natural counterbalancing which had occurred in most of Western Europe otherwise, as it prevented a landowning capitalist class from ever emerging in a political sense. The second principle which Nicholas adopted was the old idea of the mystical union between the Tsar and the Orthodox people, and this worked in compound with the third principle Nicholas would adopt, which was an idea of personal rule. The Tsar was, within his face, faith, a representation of the will of God on earth. As such, he was unrestrained from law and bureaucracy and had the sole right to rule according to his consciousness of duty. He believed that God, who was the absolute ruler of everything, uh, he believed that God, who was the absolute ruler of everything, prevented ordinary people from influencing life's daily events, and as such, he was not apt to taking advice from other people who he did not view as having some authority. 
His conviction was that God had bestowed him with the proper conscience and temperance that it took to rule Russia, which his father certainly would have disagreed with. <laughs> he, along with many Russian conservatives and royalists, believed that the natural tendency for the Russian people was to tend towards anarchy, as precisely why they needed a godlike autocrat to rule over them. His wife, who was not Slavic but was Anglo-German, frequently uh, was in his ear and f referred to the Slavic people as a beastly folk who loved to be whipped. He was a deeply Jesus. conservative man, writing on the Great War, quote, The only state which preserves the heritage of the past is strong and firm. We ourselves have sinned against this, and God is punishing us. His moral predilections were shaped by his Orthodox faith and by his wife, who was a convert to the faith, herself being even more fanatical than him. His religiosity, perhaps, uh, explains his initial fascinations with the mad monk who was often found lurking in the royal court to the consternation of many of the Tsar's advisors. Oh. He wrote, quote, When I feel vexed, I will speak to Grigory for a few minutes and immediately feel myself soothed and strengthened. <sighs> the Russian mystic Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin was born in a poor family. His father Yefim was a farmer and his mother was a package deliverer. Rasputin would have been one of nine children if it had not been for the fact that all his other siblings had died in infancy or childhood. Little else is known about his early life other than that Rasputin claims to other than what Rasputin claims to have happened to him. Local archives reveal that he had several run-ins with the authorities, but nothing like the many myths that popped up later during his rise to fame. He was already 28 years old when he claims to have experienced a radical religious conversion to Russian Orthodoxy, likely due to some unrecorded emotional or spiritual crisis, though some people suggest he saw a Marian apparition. Though he had already been married for 10 years and had many children, Rasputin decided he must go on pilgrimage during his conversion phase. He traveled to many monasteries, traveling the distance between Athos, Greece, and the Ural Mountains. Finally, he arrived in the Urals and took refuge in St. Nicholas Monastery, where he learned how to read and write and began to dedicate himself as a holy man. After gaining many followers and acolytes, he traveled to the city of Kazan on the Volga River, where he impressed many church leaders. He formed relationships with the Tsar's cousins and was first introduced to the Tsar on November 1st of 1905. A year later, he returned to the Tsar in order to present him with an icon of the Orthodox Saint Simeon. It would be naive to suggest that, the re that religiosity was the only thing that fueled the friendship between Rasputin and Alexandra and Nicholas. Rather, this friendship was likely forged at some point during the visit to the Tsar the second time. At some point during his delivery of the icon, the Tsar and the Tsarevich, which an important term that we'll have to know means the heir, Alexei, uh -huh. had been struck again with a bout of illness. Hemophilia, which threatened to destroy the royal bloodlines of Northern Europe, had spread through the issue of Queen Victoria, and the marrying of cousins had only exacerbated this. Just to put it in perspective, another thing, which I didn't actually write down, I don't think. Maybe I did, and if I did, excuse me for repeating it later. But just to put into perspective how bad the inbreeding had gotten. Yes, please. <laughs> it, so <clears throat> George and George V, monarch of England, and uh, Nicholas, monarch of Russia, so they're related by... Queen Victoria. Now you can go into all of the interrelations that you need to go into to figure out how <laughs> bad that already is. Now, Wilhelm II, German monarch, or the Prussian right. monarch, really, and Nicholas, who don't look nearly as similar, 
actually share lineage from both sides of the family. Oh, Christ. So their grandmother on the maternal side was Victoria, both of them. And remember, those two men had intermarried children and whatnot. You know, Nicholas had five daughters. He had intermarried children with them. So Uh. now on one side, Queen Victoria is the maternal grandmother. On the other side, Paul of Russia is the maternal grandfather. Now there's so much interbreeding that goes on between them that there are several interlocking lines of familiar relations between the two of them that come up before Wilhelm and Nicholas. So it, oh, is, it really is becoming a genetic mess. Of course, they didn't know these things, but, but obviously this is why Alexei is struck with hemophilia. So, so what happens? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Before so we continue, I'll tell you about. Uh, yeah. So basically if I understand right in his family, um, your brother is probably also your father and your uncle and your grandfather. <laughs> Um, well, more, your second cousin could also be your third cousin. Yeah, so it's really bad. <laughs> really bad. So Alexei is, <clears throat> unfortunately suffers the most from this. Uh, Alexei had inherited this trait and suffered badly from his condition. And Rasputin became aware of this condition during his trip when Alexandra had asked him to pray for the Ilzarevich. Uh, Alexei, uh, Alexei had rapidly recovered afterwards to the shock of the entire family. And this had cemented the relationship between the mystic and the royal family, and Alexandra became fanatically obsessed with Rasputin's healing power. A journal by Gibes Pavlyev, uh, a family tutor who would later become an Orthodox monk, records the student uh, Alexei Nikolaevich Romanov as, quote, very poor all evening. I read with him, but difficult, but he had any difficulty paying attention. He had suffered from the blood disease all his life and was frequently struck with bouts of bleeding that would last for several days. When Nicholas II was forced to abdicate his throne in 1917, he did so just a day after being told Alexei would be struck with a bout of hemophilia from which he couldn't recover. Of all the non-Russian ethnic groups in Russia, the Jews had suffered uh, from the worst of the chauvinism of Nicholas's sardom. He blamed Jewish dissidents for the assassination of Alexander II, his grandfather, and that very and the very hundreds of pogroms that were set off in the Ukraine. Uh, Both Alexander III and Nicholas II were raging anti-Semites, exhibiting open hostility to Jews uh, who they believed were plotting to destroy their autocracies. In enacting the May Laws, Nicholas II's father, Alexander, began systematically removing Jews from the city of Moscow. Uh, Nicholas associated Jews with the threats of modernity, uh, both of socialism and capitalism. He once described the pogroms as an act of patriotism calling violent rioters, quote, good and simple Russian folk. During the Belize affair, when a Jewish man was circuited through the Ukrainian courts on on charges of ritual murder, Nicholas used the situation to drum up extremist nationalism to the ire of the entire international community. To be hardly surprising, then, to hear that Eastern European Jews played a huge role in the revolutionary movement. Sergei Witt, who was the Minister of Finance, admitted that something like 50% of all the members of revolutionary parties were Jewish. Wheat blamed the government, saying it had stood by for too long while Jews were oppressed. But it was not only the Jews who had begun to form coalitions uh, in response to their oppression. Nearly all of the Finnish population rallied around the Social Democratic Young Finn Resistance Party. The Warsaw Pogrom in 1903 had destroyed the relationship between Poland and Russia. The empire was in control of the city of Warsaw at the time. 
In Ukraine, the revolutionary Ukrainian party was established in 1902. The Georgians began anti-Russian nationalist movements in 1904. The Armenians, who had always been loyal to the Russians, sharing a deep religious connection, rallied around the Dashnaks in response to Russification. Russia was on fire, and its foundations were on the brink of collapse. It's not a coincidence, then, that this situation created the perfect environment to start a fire that would become the 1905 revolution, the most significant uprising in the nation's history to date. But it would not be the last. So before we talk about 1905, the beginning of the end, I want to do something, and then we'll take a break. Uh, I need to refill my glass of water break. (laughs) Let me read to you. As well as I can, and I promise you I'm going to butcher this, but I'm going to try. (laughs) These are the full titles of Nicholas II at the time of 1905. They don't really change. He inherits all these titles. Right. Nicholas II, emperor and autocrat of all the Russias, czar of Moscow, Kiev, Vladimir, Novgorod, Kazan, Astrakhan, Poland, Siberia, the Tauric, Cherzenice, and Georgia, lord of Skov. Grand Prince of Smolnesk, Lithuania, Volhynia, Podolia, and Finland. Prince of Estonia, Livonia, Kurland, and Semigalia. Samogatia, Belostok, Karelia, Tver, Ugria, Perm, and Tvatkia. Bulgaria and other lands. Lord and Grand Prince of Nizhny Novgorod and Chernigov. Ruler of Ryazan, Potolsk, Rostov, Yaroslavl, Bolo Orozero, Udoria, Obdoria, Kondia, Vitbesk. Mstislavl and all the northern lands, lord and sovereign of the Avarian, Kartalinian, and Kabardinian lands and the Armenian provinces, hereditary lord and suzerain of the, of the Circassian princes and Highland princes and others, lord of Turkestan, heir to the throne of Norway, Duke of Schleswig-Holstein, Stormarn, the Dithmarschen, and Oldenburg. Some of those areas are by you. That, uh, that half of those sound fucking made up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this guy was more or less balling. All right, let me go get water and I'll be right back. Yeah, uh, don't hurry too much. I got to take a piss. All right. Are you, are you there? No, not yet. You might be though. I kind of hear you. Where? Oh, mm. Hold on, hold on. Ah, uh, one second. I want to get all this on recording. <laughs> <laughs> My audacity is still running.
Ah, uh, yeah, keep it running. Keep it running. Uh, all right. Well, while we're recording this, I have moved on uh, to something stronger than wine. <laughs> okay, what is that? Uh, how about a glass of Maker's Mark? Hmm. Very nice. Now I'm not a I'm not a liquor drinker, but that's I I have had Maker's one time and it was it was quite good. It's quite good. Mm. Wait, is I gin liquor? <laughs> I've say, never actually thought. I've never thought of clear liquors as liquors. <laughs> I would say that gin is liquor, just as much would as you? vodka okay, is liquor. Fine. Okay. Don't you yeah. guys make gin? Isn't that right? Didn't we just discuss this? Yeah, we discussed this in the yes, uh, tulip bubble episode. Yes, yeah, we did. Gin or that's Geneva. Right. Uh, Geneva. That's right. Yeah. This product. That's right. Did you buy a bottle of Geneva yet? No, I can't. It's so expensive to get like a, a legitimate Dutch uh, bottle of Geneva. I, I did look yeah. at the time. It was, I imagine. Uh, it's very expensive. But I will certainly keep my eyes out. Absolutely. All right. Yeah, I'm okay. uh, a very big uh, whiskey fan. Yes. I <laughs> I know, because that's usually what you are drinking. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's usually the choice. That's why when I heard wine, I was like, oh, it's fancy today. <laughs> yeah. yeah I was Do you know where Schleswig-Holstein uh... is? No, that's not near you. No, <laughs> I have never even heard of that. <laughs> Oldenburg is near you, but that's an ancient oh, name. Bro. Oldenburg. Uh, Stormarm, I don't think you know. The Dish- Dithmarschen is up there in Denmark, so you wouldn't know that. But he did have Oldenburg, which I was, I think, maybe slightly above where you are. Oldenburg. Mm. Unless it was the other Oldenburg. There's two. There's two Oldenburgs. I mean, sure. slightly above where I am is kind of hard. Uh, because slightly above oh, where I am oh, is water. I, that's right. No, I meant to the, the more like the east. But but probably no. I think. I don't know. I know this from video games. <laughs> Let's find out where it is. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's in Germany, but it is. It's in Germany, but it's not far from you. Ah, uh, okay. If you're to the to the very north, that is. Yeah. Groningen. It's like I, um, the Groningen. It's probably 40 miles from Groningen. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. <laughs> Groningen is the word you're looking How for. How about, Dre- is it Drenth? Drenthe. <laughs> How do you say that one? Oh, Drenthe. Drenthe. Okay. Yeah, okay. What's the one yeah. under Drenthe? It's something soul. Something soul. Uh, something soul. What the hell let is me- that? Uh, Are man. these state names? Are these names of provinces. states? Provinces. Provinces. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, something strassel. Fuck me. I, we gotta I do am- a whole episode where I where I pronounce Dutch words. Utrecht. Utrecht. Amsterdam. Amersfoort. Amersfoort. That was terrible. Eindhoven. <laughs> yes, that's where I live. Is actually. that good? Okay, nice. Just oh, is it really? Eindhoven. Oh, nice. Okay. Oh, nice. Eindhoven. <laughs> Eindhoven. Okay, Eindhoven. Yeah, that one's... This, it's like a lot of I, uh, noises. <laughs> lot I have of, uh... a good one. Uh, I have a good one for you here. Um, uh, send it over. Nieuwegein. Nieuwegein. I can't do it. It makes me laugh. It's hard to do it. It just makes you laugh. Uh, Netherlands. 
map, towns. I'm going to do three more, and then I'm going to get back to it. <laughs> I have to do three more. All right. I'm going to try and – all right, so you're in Brabant. Oh, are you in Brabant? Oh, that's cool. Yes. I know about well, Brabant, only because I play them in video games a lot. <laughs> I mean, technically, uh, at the moment, uh, I am in middle. Oh, right. Uh, okay, so you're farther north. Is that no. the case? I don't see where that I'm is. I'm farther oh, south. Uh, and more. Oh, oh you're west. in the Belgian land. <gasps> no, are you in the Belgian land? Oh, I'm in the Delta. Okay, good. Oh, so, I see it. Yeah, I see it. I see. Yeah, it. Okay, yeah, let's yeah. try. Oh, Middleburg is far. Uh, okay, I'll... these are this. The first one is easy. Den Haag. <laughs> <laughs> close enough. Close enough. Den Haag. <laughs> oh, here we'll do one. I can't do this one. Harlem. So it would be Harlem, Harlem, yes, ha- you're Harlem, getting Harlem, Harlem, yes, is it Harlem, yes. Harlem, so it's hard, we, we call it Harlem, because there's no, we don't do that <laughs> noise, and then here's a good one, Gouda, oh. <laughs> I thought Gouda was French, there we it go. is not, uh, it is ah, not at all nice. French, Gouda, one of the best uh, cheeses, no, it's Gouda, yes, Gouda? Oh, God. All right, fine. I'm going to do two more because I see two <laughs> interesting ones. Einkhausen? Einkhausen. Einkhausen. Yes. And Urk. 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 No, come on. Is there really a rolled R in that? Yes. See, the thing is, you guys don't roll your R's with your tongue. You roll your R's with the top of your mouth, and it's I don't know how to do that. Can you roll your R with the R? Can you do that? Like that? No, with the no, 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 no. Front like whipping the tongue. So I okay, so I could do so I could do that, and you could do. I can't do that. All right, fine. Um, let's get out. Let's stop this Dutch nonsense and let's get back <laughs> actually this Dutch tomfoolery. Um, quick, quick side note about Urk. Uh, Urk is okay, a yeah. uh, <laughs> because we're set, getting sidetracked anyway. Uh, Urk uh-huh. is a uh, fisherman's village, uh, which is Ooh. very notorious for uh, not accepting outsiders and consuming Ooh. absurd amounts of cocaine. Oh, really? That's the cocaine capital of the Netherlands? Urk? 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 Not so is much that the noise capital? you make when you come up from doing a line as you go, Urk? <laughs> it's just that fishermen in the Netherlands have a, a reputation for uh, consuming cocaine. Really? That province? Why? Is that where all of your, like, um, let's say for lack of a better term, party people are up there? Not... Quite, oh, is it like the, some the bad kind of, like the like the sad kind of cocaine, like the poor cocaine, or is it like the rich party people cocaine? Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of in a weird spot because, um, essentially what's happening with these guys is they work on ships all night long, uh, even several days at a time. So mm. when they get home, they are completely wrecked. I mean. Uh-huh. Any any normal person would just want to go to bed and sleep, um, mm-hmm. and they want to do, but they also still want to have some fun. Like they want to go out right. and party because you know it's fucking boring. Like living on a ship, fishing, and then going home and sleeping constantly. Right. So 
essentially to uh, be able to keep that kind of absurd rhythm up, they just consume absurd amounts of cocaine. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> there you go. That has nothing to do with anything, right. but there I, you are. No, but I like knowing now that I have that piece of information. <laughs> that if I ever <laughs> go to the Netherlands, I know there's places to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be staying towards the south it seems uh, alright let's do this let's talk about where it all starts to go wrong yes well I mean apart you from the incest on one hand you could, you, you could, yeah right that really yeah you're right <laughs> you could probably count on one hand how many uh, uh, actual Bolsheviks and Mensheviks I've named in this thing by the way just again to say this so thing far, is like yes. both the Bolsheviks and Mensheviks really do take advantage of this situation. And I think that's why I'm doing all this because again, our traditional understanding is that this was a communist revolution, right? right? <laughs> Does anything so far that I've said sound even slightly like specifically communism? Not really. It sounds like a, the same really kind of revolution that every revolution we've talked about, it's they always target yes. the royalty and the wealthy. It's the same every yeah. time. <laughs> except except in the United States where it was led by the wealthy, but they target a different wealthy. So, <laughs> hmm. Maybe that happens here. Who knows? Who knows? Something something capitalism. Something something. We'll see. Something something. <laughs> something. The beginning of the end. <clears throat> the reign yes. of Nicholas II began with several bad omens, chief among which was uh, his lack of formalized training. His father, Alexander III, which we already talked about the relationship that the two of them had, uh, had passed away unexpectedly from a heart attack. And Alexander, who Nicholas had developed a reverence towards, he, he viewed uh, him as the ideal autocratic figure. Uh, and he even looked, uh, believe me, he even looked the part. Alexander III was six foot three and he had a gigantic black wow. beard. Very wow. much the uh, ideal Russian autocrat. On his father's deathbed, Nicholas had burst into tears and exclaimed that he was ill-fit to rule, which he wasn't wrong, and he was uh, not prepared for the task. His wife, Alexandra, constantly urged him to be more like Peter the Great and Ivan the Terrible. I mean, there are some... And I told this to you, he refers to himself in a letter to his wife as a poor little hussy with a tiny will. Um... <laughs> Which I think is a very interesting way that they spoke to one another. I mean, you can read a lot of his diaries, and they're really sad, a lot of them, because you you almost feel bad for him, the, yeah. the position he was put in, because he really, like, he's writing to his wife, and his wife is, my God, this Anglo-German, you know, just stern. She Even she's kind of like his father towards him. She's She all, sort of says in a letter that she's the one who wears the pants. She says it to him, but this is, you know, the, a man and his wife have a particular relationship. Now, Tr Trotsky, as well as other later writers refer to him as stubborn, no willpower. Trotsky specifically calls him dumbly indifferent, <clears throat> but this isn't true. He had an incredibly strong, willpower and you will see that it wasn't his lack of willpower that led to the collapse in fact it might have been the fact that he was too committed had too much willpower to continue uh. the regime so nicholas's reign begins shakily like i said several bad omens 
Right. A stampede occurs at his inauguration festival as nearly 100,000 Muscovites riot at the lack of beer. Hundreds of women and children were trampled underfoot and dozens are killed. Student and labor unrest is on the rise and the Kineshev pogrom had completely wrecked Russian imperial standing with Russia's ethnic Jews. Russia had begun exercise uh, had Russia had begun to experience in- international strains uh, to her east as Japanese soldiers began occupying neighboring Manchuria, which had proven to be a valuable area for wa- railway trade. After the conclusion of the Sino-Japanese War and the occupation of the Chinese city of Kwatung, the European powers had gathered to force Japan to return their ill-gotten war gains. And after they did so, Russia had the balls to occupy the city of Port Arthur after the agreements were made which was the most critical port on the Sea of Japan. Nicholas allowed for mining and forestry industries to buy up concessions near the Yalu River in Korea, areas which had always traditionally been under Japanese control and influence. And Nicholas ordered 100,000 troops to occupy Manchuria to the rage of Japanese leaders and citizens alike. And with the help of Great Britain, Japan was able to seek some recourse and agree that Manchuria should be considered its own sovereign land, and Russia had agreed to gradually withdraw from the area. But the agreement didn't hold for long. Against Minister Wheat's advice, Nicholas went in in the complete opposite direction, and he declared a new course of action in Manchuria. This alarmed Witt so much that he had retired from his position and left public spheres and left the public sphere nearly for the remainder of his days. In 1903, Nicholas had telegrammed his commander at Port Arthur, informing him that he was now resolved to, quote, take full possession of the Korean Peninsula. Again, he was warned, cautioned by his minister of war, Alexei Kropotkin, not related, <laughs> to not engage in an unwinnable war. In a moment of foreshadowing, Kropotkin writes that the war would, quote, spread sedition through the entire Russian army. And just a few months later, Nicholas had referred to Japan as a barbarous country, and he instructed his diplomats to warn Japan that Russia was losing its patience. The Japanese would demonstrate their lack of patience in response. An ultimatum was sent to the Tsar by the Emperor of Japan, demanding that he publicly renounce his interests in Korea and that even a moment's delay would lead to, quote, extremely serious consequences. The message was ignored. With no hint of a reply, the Japanese were not keen on waiting for Russia to make the first move. Now, my American listeners will, will hear this and, and go, oh, that sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. On the night of the 25th of January, 10 Japanese torpedo boats made their way into Port Arthur and destroyed a Russian squadron at anchor. Three hours after the attack, Japan had officially announced a declaration of war on Russia. This enra- well, this enraged, yeah, yes. <laughs> so uh, you know, <laughs> don't fix you. And what's interesting is, <clears throat> American listeners, but really, this is important. We didn't get taught this in school that this was a part of the mo of the Japanese military to do that kind of thing. Yeah. But you'll see. Why would they do it to Pearl Harbor? Oh, because it worked. <laughs> because it yes. worked. You'll see why. You'll see why. Port Arthur was completely overwhelmed as Russian response fleets desperately tried to relieve the area. The Ottomans had blocked fleets from the Black Sea as Russia currently had no legal right to send ships through their straits after the signing of the Treaty of Berlin in a separate war. 
Though the fleets in the Black Sea were much closer, the lockdown forced the Baltic Sea fleet to respond instead. Now, again, anybody who knows their geography, I want you to trace the distance between the Baltic Sea and the Sea of Japan, (laughs) and then I'll walk you through the journey they had to take. It was forced to travel through the difficult North Sea down through the Atlantic, through the Mediterranean, into the Suez, then the Red Sea, through the Indian Ocean, and down into the South China Sea, where it would finally reach the Sea of Japan and arrive at Port Arthur, a journey rounding some 18,000 miles of distance, three times the length of Russia border to border at the time on land. Yeah, I just... uh, Fuck me. Yeah, I just... So... uh, (laughs) Like, the Baltic Sea didn't ring a bell, but we call it the East Sea. Um, the East Sea, yes. 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 Past so, Denmark. Yeah, yeah. To give your, to give our listeners a bit of an impression, it's basically the sea between, like, Denmark, Poland, uh, and Scandinavia. Scandinavia, yes. It's that little inlet that forms the Scandinavian yes, peninsula. Exactly. It's, the, it's the inside that borders Russia, yes. It's yeah. that one. So, so think about that distance. You had to go down. They had to go under Africa. So here's, yes. here, listen to this. Before the fleet was even able to round the Cape of Good Hope, Port Arthur gives up. They surrender. And at the same yeah, time, Russian and, <laughs> Russian and Japanese forces converge on Mukden. Now, now listen to what happens at Mukden. So first of all, Port Arthur is completely destroyed completely destroyed the battle of Mukden occurs and it is a tremendous defeat for the russians who lose eighty-eight thousand more troops is the largest single battle fought since the napoleonic wars and so far russia had been cost two hundred thousand troops dead and nearly one billion rubles now to put that in perspective japan and russia had very similar economies at the time in 1904 both were roughly equivalent uh sorry not economies gdps both were roughly equivalent to an output of about 1 billion rubles per year. So in other words, in a period of a few months, Russia spent its entire yearly GDP. Jeez. So it is unraveling quickly. Yes. Things begin to unravel even quicker. Minister Vyacheslav Plev, if you remember him, the railway mm-hmm. minister who was famous for constructing the Trans-Siberian Railway, uh, uh, well, one of them, was killed in a terrorist attack, uh, being bombed to death by the revolutionary Yenvo Azef, remember his name, while riding in a horse-drawn carriage. This was the second assassination attempt on him in just this year. The local Zemsvos were beginning to organize Zemsvo congresses, which demanded universal male suffrage. Well, not universal, property owners. (laughs) Nicholas was obstinate (laughs) immediately, stating he would absolutely, quote, never agree to a representative form of government, as it would violate his oath of office. And as a compromise, he was forced to expand the role of the Zemsvos and strengthen their rule of law while easing censorship. He denied any demands for a national parliament. The regime had been officially humiliated. Within the same week, Port Arthur had fallen and the Zemsvos acquired capitulations. Still, many revolutionaries were outraged at the regime's lack of willingness to comply with the will of the people. Strikes began in military manufactories, uniting under the banner of Father George Gabin, an Orthodox priest who was later hanged, being revealed as a police spy. Uh, Gabon was killed under the orders of the local leader Pinchas Rutenberg, who was appealed to appeal to party leader Yenvo Azef, as I said his name before, who was the assassinate of Plev, who was himself revealed to be a police spy later. Uh, the, out- the outrage 
at the lack of true concessions by the regime had boiled over on Sunday the 22nd. As 150,000 protesters gathered around the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg, led by Father Gabon, and presented a petition demanding a convocation of a Russian constituent assembly, an eight-hour workday, living wages, and the release of political prisoners. As Gabon led the procession down Palace Square, they were blocked by a squadron of Cossack military, behind whom were standing several lines of Russian guards. The two masses slowly paced towards one another, and all hell broke loose. No one knows who fired the first shot, whether it was in panic, anger, or error, but within a few minutes, the entire city of St. Petersburg began to erupt. Russian guardsmen fired into the crowd and dozens were instantly killed. Masses of demonstrators screamed and ran, scattered throughout the city as they were mowed down by Cossack sabers and indiscriminate rifle fire. By the end of Bloody Sunday, as it's known by the revolutionaries, over 200 people were dead in all parts of the city, and over 800 more were wounded. Similar massacres occurred in the following days as the city of Riga exploded, and Latvian protesters marched on police lines and were fired on. 70 were killed and 200 wounded. The Grand Duke Sergei Alexandrovich, general governor of Moscow, was blown apart in a terror bombing. Holy shit. Ethnic riots broke out in the lawless border boom town of Baku in modern-day Azerbaijan, where Armenians and Tartars massacred one another by the thousands. One revolutionary, Yosef Jugashvili, Stalin, as you'll know him, made his name fundraising for the Baku Bolshevik Party during this mayhem as he formed protection rackets, extorted wealthy boomtown oil barons, and robbed banks. Just as the Battle of Mukden was raging, riots began to simmer over in border regions, and they were becoming uncontrollable. Policing in villages and towns had broken down, with troops engaging on demonstrators are recorded 240 times, or a 20% of all the times they met. Generals began to complain about the army, how the army was being used, but regiments managed to hold firm. The western borderland had been stripped of troops to fight the Japanese. Nicholas uh, recorded that he was at the point of being ready to sue Japan for peace after a single face-saving battle occurred, but that battle never came. Mukden fell just two days later. 80,000 Russian troops were dead and chaos befell the empire. Political killings occurred every single day, and anyone associated with the Tsarist regime was considered a target. 3,600 Imperials were killed or wounded by 1905. The Russian army mutinied in June a few months later. The crew aboard the ship Potemkin had protested rotting food that they were served. Their appointed leader, Gregory Valkilinchuk, complained to the captain. A melee ensued aboard the ship which left eight dead, including the captain and Valkilinchuk. A Soviet was formed by the crew members and the ship attempted to get to the city of Odessa, a major port on the Black Sea. They raised the red flag of communism and attempted to seek the support of the city's revolutionaries. At the same time, a labor strike in the city was called. Nicholas declared martial law in the city. The Potemkin was flanked by torpedo boats, but the ship outgunned every other individual vessel in the Russian Navy. A funeral was staged for Valkilinchuk, and the procession attempted to make it aboard. By the afternoon, the procession had turned riotous as 10,000 people crammed into the port area. Looters set fire to buildings and ransacked warehouses, and a stampede began to escape the encroaching inferno. By midnight, General Kakanov ordered his troops to fire on the rioting crowds to disperse them in order to deal with the fires. 2,000 people were butchered on the steps of the Odessa port, and the battleship was helpless to respond. The ship was steered out of the port and into Romanian port of Constanza, where they received political asylum. Nicholas and his regime were exhausted. The Japanese regime, too, was exhausted. Theodore Roosevelt, leader of an emerging Pacific power, offered to mediate the deals in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. 
Former minister Sergei Wheat was called out of retirement to negotiate the peace deals. Russia was forced to immediately evacuate Manchuria and concede a large portion of influence in Korea. Peace was achieved in the exterior. In July of 1905, talks began with the new interior minister and plans were drawn to convene a constituent assembly, the Duma, which was elected by popular vote by property owners. Student protesters would be allowed to convene and military police would be banned from campuses. On the heels of the loss of the war and Bloody Sunday, however, the deal failed. Bolsheviks formed a military organization and pumped out mutinous propaganda aimed at soldiers and sailors. Railroad protesters were striking and telegraph and telephone workers marched, causing a permanent disability in Russia's communication networks. Nicholas had to act quick, and he was eventually urged by Wheat to accept the October Manifesto. The resulting October Manifesto, which was issued in the name of Nicholas II on October 17th of 1905, marked a climb down for autocracy, even if it fell a short of genuine constitution. In it, the Tsar guaranteed Russians, quote, fundamental civil freedoms, including, quote, real personal inviolability, freedom of conscience, speech, assembly, and association. Parliament would shortly be elected by, quote, those classes of the population which are at present deprived of voting powers, which would be more or less all of them, and they were given legislative powers. This was Witt's carrot, and now came the stick. To convince his sovereign uh, to issue the pride-swallowing manifesto, Wheat had quietly assured the Tsar that he had a plan to bring down the revolutionaries. Appointed chairman of the Council of Ministers in November of 1905, he was given indiscriminate control over the ability to do so. Faulting the army for its indecisiveness so far, proposed that the whole country be put under martial law rather than waiting for riots to spin out of control. The Tsar himself minuted on a report of a clash between Ukrainians at the port of Nikolev and soldiers. Uh, quote, the troops are obliged to answer with fire and to smash the feeblest appearance of armed resistance. With the backing of both Wheat and Nicholas II, the Russian war ministry sent out an order to all units, emphasizing, quote, any crowd using arms ought to be fired on without mercy. The revolution now reached its climax. As if following Wheat's script, Trotsky responded to the manifesto by calling for a general strike to achieve an eight-hour workday. St. Petersburg's industrialists, assured of Wheat's backing, locked more than 100,000 workers out. In December of 1905, the interior minister, uh, who was an unapologetic authoritarian in Wheat's mold, began making arrests of the Soviet executive committee. In retaliation, Trotsky and Parvis issued their own manifesto, asking Russians to stop paying taxes and to withdraw their savings from, from state banks to destroy the confidence in the ruble. The next day, Dernovo and Witt ordered the arrest of 260 members of the Soviet, including Trotsky and Parvis. Curiously, Lenin and 40 leaning Bolsheviks, including Stalin, were at a secret party conference in Finland when the Petersburg Soviet was smashed, which did not enhance their reputation, although Stalin, at least, had already proven his bona fides, being the criminal that he was. <laughs> so this is more or less how it ends. They restore a monicum of law and order to the country, and the regime brings itself back into power with the passing of the fundamental laws. The Duma is put into place, uh, even though it was more or less disappointing, and the Tsar had the ability to dissolve the Dumas at any time. But coming on the hands of Russia's military defeat and the revolution of 1905, which had shaken the Russian Empire to its foundings, the Tsar was fortunate enough that he produced a statesman like Wheat who was courageous enough to chart the right course, and he could only hope that a statesman of similar caliber could fill the role after Wheat's second abrupt retirement. And that's it. That's where we are. All right. Going. So that is, in conclusion, 
we begin talking about the regime, how autocratic it was, why, talk about Nicholas, talked about Alexei, the heir, and we went on to the revolution of 1905. We talked about Bloody Sunday, Potemkin. Yeah. After that, more racial and ethnic riots that occur, leading to us here in 1905 at the point of resolution of the 1905 uh, revolution, which gives them the Duma, which will be, you'll see what happens to the Duma (laughs) later on. But then you get people like Kerensky who come out of the Duma. Lenin will make his way in and uh, Trotsky gets out of prison at one point and we'll uh, pick up on all that in episode two where we'll go and cover the uh, time period between 1905 and 1917. All right. So there you go. Any questions on the closing uh, of that, I, by the way? Uh, no. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, the, the revolution, the part about talking about the actual revolution just makes you go, geez. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So there's your, there's your 1905 Russian Revolution, known to the Russians as the first Russian Revolution, although maybe not all of them call it that. Maybe the only rough Russian revolution is what some of them would like to call it. Um, we'll see. So there you go. Uh, uh, well, that wasn't as long as it, it was like two hours, I suppose. Roughly two hours, I'd say. Possibly been. Minus a little bit. Not terrible. Say one and a half. So why don't you give your plugs and then I'll do my. All right. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, my plugs. Um, I uh, I go by Bolshido or Bolshido Pol on Twitter. Uh, so just type in like Bolshido in your search bar, and I'm like the second result. Um, well, you've been on the show before. They yeah, know yeah. Uh, I also run a uh, a, a very successful, <laughs> uh, very very high quality <laughs> uh, podcast uh, called No Real Libertarian. Um, where I talk to Bird about history. Um, and sometimes I yell at one of my buddies. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, very rarely, I also actually interview people about things. Um, <laughs> so, uh, lastly, if you uh, want to help my personal show uh, grow, uh, like help me afford uh, an expensive mic, and sound treatment and shit like that mm. to help me sound like that of a poor. Sure. Uh, go to my Patreon and give me money. Uh, Patreon.com slash bullshitopol. You know, just like bullshitopol. Uh, you know, learn how to spell it and you'll find it. Uh, and if you don't know how to find yes. it, just learn fucking hit me up. Yes. Hit him up by finding him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> hit him up by finding him. <laughs> or check the notes yes. <laughs> in the page. Um, no, Bert. Oh God, I gotta do plugs. Uh, I wasn't. You run? Yeah, a, I wasn't uh, prepared for this one. A, a little-known podcast as well, right? <laughs> That's right. So this is not good because on your show we know how this goes, but I'm not sure what to do on my own show. <laughs> uh, uh, hi, everybody. I'm Car Campit. I run the Friends Against Government podcast. Please follow me on at Car Campit. I need lots of followers and to win some more volleyball games. <laughs> and That's all it. right. <laughs> <laughs> I love doing these by the way man I, I can't I really can't wait till we do by the way I hope people liked this one because we're going to do all the Russian revolutions as a as a cross promotion right. and if you like those you got to go to his podcast because we're doing probably 
probably the communist revolution in China next, and that's exclusive to his, and that's going to be oh, nuts yes. because I'm going to have to pronounce a lot of very difficult <laughs> names. <laughs> so, so uh, uh, go over to his show now, later, and forever. Yes. Um, right. uh, oh, you have to do. Can you do the two hands on the wheel for me, please? <laughs> uh, Someone has uh, to do it. What was it again? Just um. Like keep two hands on the wheel? Yes. Wow.